This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We're going to start the show off talking about one of my favorite slash least favorite topics, and that is, of course, housing. Yesterday, we talked a lot about how housing is kind of connected to everything, to affordability, to debt, to just basically our 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 lives in general here in the lower mainland in BC and in Canada at large because it's just so expensive. And uh, this headline caught my eye yesterday. A new study from RBC Basically, it says that uh, it's stuck. Housing is stuck. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically they're saying that short of a massive housing crash, like a crash in the market, it's going to take years, giant leaps, concentrated effort to to do anything to fix housing affordability. I kind of take this as bad news. I don't know about you. Here now to help us unpack it is Tom Davidoff. He's the director of UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Uh, We've spoken before, Tom. I always appreciate your insight because you sort of help me calm down when I start to panic about what's happening in real estate. And even though this is like, this is not probably not going to come as a big surprise to anyone. I find this like it, anytime I hear a report like this, I'm just like, oh man, are we ever going to be able to have affordable housing in BC? You know, uh, the quote I like to think a lot about these days is from 1984. I'll see if I get it right. You know, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a human face being stomped on forever. I think I got that a little bit wrong, but, uh, <laughs> a boot stamping on a human face forever, whatever. No, nothing's going to get better. Uh, I think affordability is only going to get worse. Doesn't mean people aren't trying. I think government's making some reasonable steps. Uh, But uh, we're just uh, swimming against a really strong tide. Yeah. uh, Yeah. you You know, prices might come down, for example, with very high interest rates, but the cost of ownership is still going to be much higher because rates are rising much faster than uh, prices may fall. Yeah, and that was one of the things that uh, I I talked about with uh, Simi Sarah this morning in our crossover there, that she sort of remarked that it's a bit surprising that housing hasn't come down yet because of the way that interest rates have gone up. And so many people, we hear these stories kind of anecdotally day in and day out, people talking about how their mortgage has gone up $1,000 a month or $2,000 a month. I know mine is going to go up potentially more than that in 2025 if things kind of continue that way. Did you expect to see a trickle down from that into affordability, or does that math not make sense in your world? Well, I guess I did. I would have expected had rates been as high for as long as they have. I, I'm pretty surprised we haven't seen a more significant correction. And I think it's a tribute to people's willingness to hold on and sit. And if you don't have to sell, you don't sell. I mean, that is the problem. It's not just prices that can adjust, it's transaction volume. And we've seen very, very few transactions for the most part relative to where we were in the boom. And, you know, so the market is managing to not really move very much because because of the, the lack of transactions. If, if, if sellers all had to sell today, 
you know, I think we'd see different prices emerge, but but not all sellers have to sell. The longer people are stuck uh, with high cost mortgage loans and, and mortgage loan costs that are higher than than when they signed up, you know, then you would expect to see people being forced to sell, you know, but not in a recession yet. So haven't seen that. Yeah, I know, like, in my mind, and again, like, strictly anecdotal, it's like, well, my mortgage is going to get so much more expensive, but I still feel like I'm ahead paying into this mortgage, paying, you know, a a greater percentage of my income into the mortgage than I would be if I sold and had to go out and find another place to rent to kind of wait until interest rates come down. It's like, oh, I'm I'm committed this far into the housing market, so I'm going to just do everything I can to stay in the housing market. But is that, is that necessarily wise? Like, should we, should we take that attitude? Like if my mortgage goes up, should I be selling? Well, the problem is uh, trying to time the market, right? So you could sell, you know, suppose lots of people decide, well, let's all sell. Prices are going to come down. So you're going to sell at a worse price. Uh, And then, you know, the, the issue is when rates come down again, you say, okay, well, I'll buy back with lower rates, my, my payments will be less. I will have saved a bunch of money. But the problem is, uh, if you try and buy when rates have fallen, of course, prices are likely to rise when that happens. And I think what's happening in the market, I would guess, is lots of people anticipate that this current rate environment <clears throat> is temporary and will go back to lower interest rates uh, than today. And, and when that happens, I think there'll be a surge, people probably expect there'll be a surge in prices then. So, you know, FOMO says, let, let, let me just ride this out. Yeah, that FOMO factor is a huge one. And the other thing that I sort of think about, it's like, and we go back to this all the time, is that it's it's just a, a basic supply and demand issue. You know, like you mentioned, that people are ho- people are holding on. Like I look on Realtor.ca all the time, and on my street, like houses never come available, never. So when one does, it would make sense that there's a ton of interest. And even though people can't <laughs> afford it, there are people that have kind of been waiting in the wings, right? Yeah, and there's a couple of issues here. You know, uh, one is. Uh, We've seen from the city and rumbles from the province and maybe even the feds now uh, about requiring, you know, all municipalities to allow single family homes to get up zoned. So I would imagine there's a bit of a force in the market that for single family homes, especially ones that haven't been updated, uh, interest in land has actually grown despite the recession. So that might be offsetting things a little bit. The condo side, I would think, would be where you'd see the, the crunched, uh, over-leveraged owners. And, you know, there's no there's no benefit to condo owners. In fact, the opposite of single family gets upzoned. So I guess I would expect more bad news there. But, but even then, I don't think we've seen a crash in condo yet. Toronto, maybe, you know, we're seeing the beginnings of one possibly, but not sure at all. Yeah, and when you when you say crash, can you give us like an is twenty percent qualify as a crash? Ten percent? Does it have to be more than that? What quali- What would qualify as a crash? Yeah, no. If there's a crash naming committee, I'm not on it. But you know, twenty sure. would be really big. I mean, if you just talk about magnitudes of price declines that one sees, you know, twenty percent is huge. Uh, you know, by year to year or even multi year standards in terms of decline. So twenty percent would be a lot. And even if we saw a twenty percent decline. Uh, and, you know, I think we got to 20% in sub-markets in Canada, you know, when, when rates first came up. So I, I think we may have seen that. Uh, that's a lot. But, but 20% isn't going to get you back to affordability. In fact, still, with interest rates having risen by as much as they are, affordability is worse 
even 20 percent below today uh, than they were before rates started rising. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like, of course, for renters, you know, for renters, uh, falling prices means nothing. It's the level of rents. And there's no reason to expect to see rents falling uh, in the current environment unless we hit a recession. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just, uh, we'll end with this, but the knowledge in sort of in the lower mainland, at least for my peer group, and I think my demographic was like, it's never a bad time. Real estate is the difference maker between wealth and non-wealth. You should always get into the market because, you know, you're kind of paying yourself that. Is that gone? Does that still apply in your mind? I think the big issue is there's a tax preference to owning housing, uh, right? You know, you don't pay a tax on the dividend that you get by owning the place. You don't pay a tax on capital gains. So it's, it's a very good asset in that way. You know, people like ownership. Uh, and probably, you know, there, there's a really strong economic force uh, sustaining it, which is uh, the growing population of Canada and the difficulty of getting housing built. So it's probably a good long-run investment uh, still. Timing the market, I just don't think, is, is something people should try to get into to say, I know better than the market where prices should be relative to where they are today. So I think if you're committed to a place, you want to live in it for a while, uh, and you're able to make payments, you know, I, I, I wouldn't get into the business of buying or not buying based on, on trying to time the market. Right, but still still makes a lot of sense. I get that. It's Tom Davidoff. He's director of the UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Always appreciate your insight. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in. 604-280-9898 is the open line if you want to weigh in. I mentioned this story yesterday in my chat with Bill Thielman, and uh, I'm excited to go back into it today because I know I saw it a, a lot of places yesterday. A lot of people were sharing this, and I will uh, caveat this by saying I'm not like an Elon Musk fan. He's a controversial dude. He's done some good things. He's done some bad things. But he was in the news yesterday because he tweeted, posted on social X, whatever you want to call it now, that Justin Trudeau is trying to crush free speech with new podcast rules. Essentially, this has a lot to do with like Bill C-11, online streaming acts and stuff that the federal government wants to regulate podcasting along with a bunch of other things in our country. And what is that going to look like? You know, this post from Elon Musk was like quite alarming. Like, oh my gosh, people were getting on board with that. Is this as bad as it seems? What is this actually going to look like? Am I going to be able to have a podcast from my garage? Am I going to be able to access the podcasts that I want to be able to access. So here now to help us sort through it is uh, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa, Michael Geist, and he's written about this as well. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is your reaction to this? Like, is, is Elon Musk's post accurate? Like, are we facing the possibility of, like, regulated podcasting in Canada? No, not really. Um, you know, I think it's it's a pretty significant exaggeration. That's not to say that we aren't moving towards increased regulation of a whole range of internet services, including the prospect of some podcast platforms or po- very popular podcasts being required to at a minimum register with the CRTC. But the notion that the average podcaster that doesn't generate significant amount of revenues is going to have to do much of anything, register or face any sort of regulations, uh, isn't consistent with what we've seen so far. Okay. Is there a chance that um, this could be like a first step 
in that, and you know, I don't want to be alarmist or, or anything, you know, but that this could this could sort of open the floodgates towards further regulation. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that it is the first step towards further regulation. Okay. Um, you know, in fact, the CRTC makes it clear that it this is the first step. So it's registration. There is a follow-on hearing that will involve. Uh, the prospect of other regulation that's going to take place in a, in a month or so. Uh, and there will be a whole series of other consultations that will will drill further into that. But CRTC has also made it clear that it's established an exemption level of $10 million in Canadian revenue. So if you, if you aren't above that amount, uh, you're excluded. So let's, let's face it, realistically, there are not that many podcasters hosting their own podcast that generate that much revenue. And if they don't, that they're not covered. Okay, so let's say, in the hypothetical situation here, uh, Joe Rogan podcast. It's a very popular podcast, very controversial. A lot of people really like it. A lot of people not huge fans of it. It had, you know, some um, crit- crit- critique towards it over things like misinformation and stuff, a lot of it around COVID and vaccines. So that podcast makes more than $10 million. Is this the type of thing that we could see the Canadian government say, that podcast is no longer available in Canada? No, it isn't going to touch on availability either. Um, now, first off, whether or not Rogan makes ten million in Canada is, I think, still I see. Point. Okay, so I that's another. With, factor. I agree with you that there's no doubt that podcast as a whole globally generates in, in excess of that. But uh, the Canadian figure, I'm not so sure that it does. But regardless, no, this isn't going to to that content side. The start is registration, and even on that issue, I have to admit, you know, the CRTC seeks to downplay it. They say it's very basic information, and by and large, it is pretty benign. But at the same time, they argue that it's essential to their carrying out their regulatory responsibilities. And it's a little bit hard to square that circle. That on the one hand, you say it's not really significant information. On the other hand, you say it's absolutely essential to what you want to do from a regulatory process. There is, as I say, this follow-on process that will go beyond registration, that will go into regulation and the prospect of regulating. It was supposed to be targeting you know, what the government said was the big web giants, big streamers like uh, Netflix and Disney and, and Spotify. It's clear that it covers far more than that, and this is a good example. It also covers potentially news sites and adult content sites and a whole range of other uh, kinds of content are potentially scooped up into all of this. And yes, there is no question that it's possible as this goes forward, there will be groups that say, hey, we want some of those sites to, to pay into the system. We want to see the CRTC regulate how they display certain kinds of content. I don't think they're going to say you can't say something or restrict in those ways, but there certainly will be some, there certainly could be depending on on the particular platform some amount of regulation. Right. So why why does the CRTC and the Canadian government want to do this? Is this like a control thing? Is this so that um, we can gather data on sort of who is saying what in the country? Like, what's the end goal for the CRTC? in wanting to first register and then, like we talked about, uh, regulate? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it started with, as I say, the, the, this view that large streaming services like Netflix, let's say, weren't contributing enough into the Canadian economy. They argued that they're the same as large broadcasters. They ought to be treated just like that. The reality is they actually do make significant investments in Canada. This would force them to do that. But along the way, the government extended or expanded the scope of this law pretty significantly. It did first, and this was very controversial, 
include the prospect of regulating user content, and there was a lot of concern about that. But at the same time, and people didn't pay as much attention to this, they took the position that any streaming service, anywhere in the world, audio or video, including the kinds of content we're talking about, like podcasts, were all caught by this legislation. And they said, well, we'll leave it to the CRTC to figure out who's in and who's out, because they knew that that was, it was a bit crazy in terms of just how broad this would be. And now we're kind of seeing that play out with the CRTC setting up some of those standards. It could have taken a different approach. It could have said, for example, that they really are just interested in the large web giants and set $100 million, let's say, as the threshold, and, and made it clear that they were excluding all this other kinds of of content that, that's, that's smaller in scope. But they chose not to. And in fact, it should be noted, there were groups that wanted it even lower. They wanted like a million-dollar threshold. They wanted very large registration lists. And they further will want very broad, broadly applied regulations. Hmm. Yeah. Now, for a person like me, I, I tend to have a, a fairly um, idealistic view of the internet. Um, I know not everybody takes that that view, but I think that you know, it. I grew up with it, and free, open, this incredible resource um, that has the potential to do so much good, but we also know has done a lot of harm. Is this like is Canada leading the way? It, for what the rest of the world will follow, you know, like with the Online News Act, do you expect that other countries will see what Canada is doing and, you know, 20 years from now, the idea of the internet that we have now will just be, you know, a thing that existed in the past and, you know, the only version of the internet that we have is a regulated, you know, is that like, do you see this leading to that? Well, I mean, it's a really interesting question, and there's a few in there. I, I would start by saying, listen, the Internet, of course, is always evolving. I think it will continue to do so. There's always been some amount of regulation. We are seeing more regulation, and, and I think you can make a good case that there is a need for some of this regulation. That said, you know, you mentioned, for example, Bill C-18, the Online News Act, which has led Meta, Facebook, to block access to news links on the Facebook and Instagram platforms, and there's reports today that it looks like Google may well follow suit uh, and I think that in many ways, uh, the Canadian approach is not a model for the rest of the world. In fact, it's the opposite. I think it's it's a clear signal for many countries about what not to do when it comes to Internet regulation. Okay. See, that gives me hope. I, I feel uh, like, all right, fantastic. The, the Internet is this like global tool. It has connected us and made the world a smaller place. And like we, like, I agree with you that there is some stuff that needs to be regulated there. But the idea of you know, everything being you know, sort of passed through these filters, uh, you know, as a person who grew up with it, I don't like that. And um, the idea that some of the things that I have that the internet has given us, like podcasting, um, being changed, it, it causes me to get a little bit squirrely. Maybe it makes me sound a little bit old. I'm not really sure. But um, thank you so much for your time. Michael Geist, he's the Canadian Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in today. Sounds like Mike is going to be away tomorrow, so I will be here tomorrow as well. You can get in touch anytime, Scott at CKNW. And thank you to everybody who's been emailing. I am trying to get back to everyone, and I intend to because I love this. I love having dialogue about the issues that are facing our country and the people that live in it and our province and us right here at home. Okay, we're going to shift gears here a little bit. I want to talk about school food programs. Uh, When I grew up, I went to like... 
a, a very average, very normal, like suburban school, W.J. Mowat, uh, out in Abbotsford. I loved it there. I got a great lunch packed for me every day. I had breakfast at home, had a lunch packed. When school was over, I went home and like had a snack and stuff. We were food secure. I understand that now. And I understand that not everybody has that same experience. I'm sort of checking my privilege here and learning that um, we have a bit of a long way to go in, ter- in terms of that and understanding what the di- what difference like a food program can actually make. Uh, news is out yesterday that Canada is the only G7 country without a national food program, and advocates are saying that it is time. Here now to help us understand what that means and where we go from here is Rachel Engler-Stringer. She is a professor in community health and epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan talking about school food programs. Thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, let's start right there and just maybe explain for people who don't have a full understanding of what it is. What is a school food program and like talk about maybe some of the different um, variations of that and what that actually looks like for kids that use it. Absolutely. So it looks different in different parts of the country. Uh, So in provinces like BC or here where I am in Saskatchewan, typically those programs are lunch programs uh, and then there's often sort of breakfast programs that are a bit more uh, kids kind of dropping into the programs uh, depending on whether they ate that morning or not. Uh, in Ontario, it's more snack programs because they don't have a lunch hour, unlike the rest of us in so the country. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Pretty weird. Um, but so, so typically these programs are lunch programs. Most often they're run by volunteers uh, using charitable food sources, ch- charitable funding to purchase food, um, and then some government funding as well. They're, they're typically pieced together by a whole bunch of kind-hearted people who are trying to ensure that kids have what they need to, you know, to learn well and to, to be well at school. Okay, so provincially we have some resources here, but nationally compared compared to other countries, we don't we don't have like a, a systematized thing that says this is how we're going to do it. That would be better as I understand it, right? If if the Canadian government said we're going to have this, this is what it's going to look like and this is how we're going to support it. Yeah, so so I think what you're talking about is a national school food policy. So having some sort of set of um, very specific criteria that programs would need to follow, and you know that they're that they're healthy, that they meet you know different communities' needs. I mean, obviously programs need to be different depending on their whether they're in downtown Vancouver or, you know, they're in small, remote or rural communities that, you know, there are different different needs and different situations. Um, but that the policy would, would give us sort of a framework for how programs should look. Um, so that's certainly one piece of this. In addition to that, there is no federal funding, um, except for in some cases on reserve, but um, not not there isn't federal funding in the in the broader in, in the broader sense. So provinces are putting in money, and it's different in every province and every territory. Uh, and so there's just there's really a lack of consistency is a big part of the a big part of the issue. And globally, it's a very different situation. Most affluent countries have some sort of national school food program um, around the world. It's it's over two-thirds, closer to three-quarters of kids who get a meal at school. Really, I think for those of us who've been born and raised in Canada, we think that the way that we do things is normal, but actually it's not if you compare it to the rest of the world. 
Oh, absolutely. I completely get that. Like I, I, like I said, uh, off the top, you know, grew up in Abbotsford and went to like a very normal, like middle-class high school. And, you know, the kids who didn't pack a lunch bought their lunch in the cafeteria. And, and I just always perceived it that way. I'm like, wait a minute, the school feeds us like that. I've never heard of that before, but that's really normal. And maybe if you can talk about like how that benefits students. Yeah, so, I mean, what the, what the research tells us from around the world is there are educational benefits, there are long-term health benefits, um, you know, there's social benefits, feeling of belonging, community, uh, you know, especially with kids who are, who are vulnerable for whatever reason, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that kids, you know, have a harder time at school. It's particularly helpful for them, and it's particularly, uh, particularly important for younger kids, um, so, you know, elementary school students especially. So, um, if, you know, if we're just trying to think about what this looks like in, you know, in different part, in different places in the world. So there's a whole lot of examples. Some of the best, I would say two of the best are Japan and Finland. So in Japan, it's not free. Parents do pay um, a portion of the cost. Okay. And that's what happens in some cases in Canada. So Prince Edward Island has just the last few years implemented an amazing pay what you can program uh, universally throughout the whole throughout the whole province. So it's not necessarily free for everyone, but if families are contributing, it has to be done in a way that doesn't bring stigma. So it has to be done so that kids, so that people in the school don't know who paid and who who didn't pay. Um, so that it, it so that it you know creates a bit of an even an even playing field to the degree that you can. Um, and then, and then in Japan, it's also integrated into curriculum. Kids serve each other. They clean up after the meal. They learn about the foods that are uh, being served and how they're how they're produced. Um, it's really integrated so that it's all. Oh, sorry, Rachel. You just your phone your phone just broke up just a little bit there. Can you say that again? Um, so just the, I guess the last part of what I said. So in Japan, it's 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 really designed so that um, it's it's integrated into the whole education system. So kids are learning about the food that they're eating. They're serving each other. They're cleaning up from the meal. There's a creation of a social atmosphere, and so. Their lunch program is basically, you know, it's part of their it's part of their school day, just like just like all right. the rest of what they're what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. So quickly, while we have uh, just a minute or two left here, why don't we have this? It sounds so great. The benefits seem obvious. This is Canada. You know, we're supposed to be one of the leading countries globally. We're all proud to be from here. Our education system is, I th- I think, pretty great. Why don't we have this? And how do we get this into our schools? Yeah, so there's some historical reasons in the aftermath of the Second World War, which was really the last time we were talking about this in a serious way. Um, the, the federal government implemented the Family Allowance Program, and they decided that they uh, that that was going to be enough. That would be enough to make sure all kids were were fed well. And the Family Allowance Program was designed so that women would go back into the home because women, of course, were working during the Second World War. Men came back; they wanted men to have the jobs, the women to go home. And- family allowance program was put in place. Um, but of course, we haven't had a family allowance since the 90s. And uh, we have had work in a large majority for quite some time as well. So the situation that we had at the end of the Second World War is pretty different from where it is today. Uh, in terms of how we get there, I think there's a couple of things. Number one is provinces are already putting in some money. Those provinces need 
to advocate to the federal government to say we want matching funding. We want funding as well um, from, coming from you. We want that policy that provides the consistency across the country. Um, and we have all kinds of models here and there. They're ad hoc all over the place, but we build from what we already have and create a program that's that works every type of community in Canada. Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz, filling in. And uh, here's a question for you. Do you feel like Vancouver has a nightlife? Do you feel like there are things to do at night, a nightlife? Like you can go out and enjoy yourself and have a good time and it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg and you can get a cab and go home and there's actual places to go where you can get in? I don't feel like that. It's been a long time since I've tried to go out at night because, well, I have kids, but also because when I used to go out at night, it was such a hassle. And there is a thought that government regulations are part of the reason that we don't have a nightlife economy. There's a lot of people here that want to go out at night and want to do the nightlife thing. We're a big, international, happening, positive city, and there is money to be made in nightlife. Our government relations stifling this. Here now to weigh in is Cameron Bogue. He is from Mount, Pleas- Mount, whew, excuse me, Mount Pleasant Vintage and Provisions. Hi, Cameron. How are you? Hey, it rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Sure does. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So what do you think? Are government relations or regulations stifling our late night economy here in the city? Absolutely. The barrier to entry in this city is second to none in, in North America. Uh, it's very cost prohibitive and, and it takes a lot of time. Can you explain that a little more and like maybe give some examples just for people who, yeah, are, who we, might be unfamiliar? Opened, for sure. We just opened one year ago. So we just went through the entire process. Uh, and the building permit itself takes about 12 to 18 months just to get approved. So any, any new entrepreneur has to budget that much rent, that, that, that amount of money to, uh, to be able to float themselves until they can get open. So there's tons of tons of, of things that, uh, that are holding back young entrepreneurs. Okay. And do you think that there is like enough, enough like interest in having nightlife around the city that this type of thing could be sustainable? Absolutely. The challenge as well is, is the limited amount of liquor primary licenses. So in Vancouver, we have two different types of, of licenses to sell alcohol. We have a food primary and a liquor primary, which has forced the city into two concepts. We basically have restaurants and nightclubs. Right. What we're doing differently, what Leopold's is doing differently, what the American, what some of these bars are starting to do is showing the drinking culture has changed. It's not just nightclubs. People are socializing different. They want to rub elbows and have fun places that aren't just restaurants. So the licensing is a huge opportunity to, to reform, to liberalize, and to just open, open the doors for young entrepreneurs to get their foot in the door. And this provides, obviously, more tax base for the government as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the vice taxes are massive. <laughs> yeah, and liquor tax and all, all of that type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm 41, and any time that it's like, hey, we're going to go out and have a night we, we pick a restaurant because I'm not going to a nightclub because, again, I'm 41. And uh, it's like, oh, let's pick a restaurant that serves and hopefully is open past, you know, 1030. And we'll go and we'll sit there and we'll have a meal and then we'll just have a bunch of drinks and stuff as the, as the night goes on and you socialize with friends and then you kind of go home. But it, that kind of feels like we should be have other options, you know, other than that. Um, and like you say, you want to be able to rub elbows and, you know, play pool and sort of um, mix and mingle and stuff. So maybe... Like you talk about the liquor licensing thing, why why can't we have more liquor licenses? Why can't they just sort of say, "Yep, 
this is what's holding us back. It's the permits that are holding us back, and we're just going to um, we we understand the need here, and we understand that there's an appetite for it. So we're just going to fast track some of that stuff. Why not that? It sounds like Ken Sim is trying. He's trying to get some of these things going, but it is bound by by geography and population. So some of these archaic rules have a finite amount of licenses that are available for a, a certain area based on how many people live there. So there are just no more available. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of them have been hoarded by nightclubs, which are now, we see a lot of them failing, like this model did not work. Um, but with the, the availability of new licenses, I believe more of a survival of the fittest. That, that's my mentality. Um, come, come see what we're doing at our bar. Uh, we're about the same age. Um, and one thing that I mentioned or noticed that you said was you go to restaurants and hang out with, with friends. Uh, the challenge is at restaurants, you're not allowed to get up and socialize and meet people. Right. So there's not an opportunity to stand. There's not opportunities to go to a bar unless you're at a nightclub. So there's a few of us that are offering things like that. And uh, I, I, I think that's the future. Um, and, uh, and, and it's tough, man. I really, I just went through this process. And the whole reason I, I, I'm vocal about this is to make a difference for the, the next generation. Like we need people that are younger that don't have to build an entire kitchen. They can open bars with a, a shoestring budget. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. And I, I, going through those years, those like going out sort of having fun years when there only was nightclubs, it totally sucked. It, it, like it's so loud in there. You know, you can't have a conversation unless you want to dance, which if you do, like that's that's totally fine. That's great. But you would see it sort of in movies and media and stuff that people would go to a bar and they would just, like you say, kind of stand, hang around, walk around with a drink in their hand, buy somebody a drink, be be social. And I was I remember thinking to myself, why don't we have these places? We don't have any places like this. In, in Vancouver, in BC, in the Lower Mainland. And I, you know, I sort of look at the spot that you guys have opened and it looks exactly like that. So you were saying that that's the trend, that nightclubs are starting to, to phase out and people are more interested in doing that type of thing. Is that what, what you're noticing? Yeah, we've seen that for a while with the rise of cocktail bars. Like socializing is different. People do want to have a little lower volume, communicate, meet people, and, and be in that sort of environment. And now we're seeing cocktail bars, now that they're becoming quite prolific, becoming more approachable. And that's what we're doing, like a, a fun party cocktail bar. Um, and this isn't a new, new concept. Like, we didn't create this. Like, these, uh, these sort of places exist. This creativity exists in Austin and Wynwood, Miami and East Nashville. Even in Toronto, you go to bars and you notice there's a, 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 a ton of different bars that you walk into that have no tables. Uh, you go to Vancouver, that does not exist. That's why we're trying to, uh, trying to change that. Yeah, absolutely. And it does feel like there's an appetite there. And you did mention, you know, Ken Sim, he has talked about, you know, wanting to bring the fun back and turning Vancouver back into fun city. Do you, do you think that we're going to get there? Or do you think that there is still like some time until, until it kind of gets to, to what we're envisioning here? Man, government's so way over my head, but what, what Ken promised and what he's talked about to the restaurant tours seems exciting. Um, and it's not just to restaurant tours. The, the speeding up the business, uh, uh, the building permit and development permit process would would change everything. Um, like I said, they can take six to thirty six months, depending on the size of your concept. Um, and there's talk of them bringing it down to forty eight hours. 
And that yeah. immediately would, would just change the entire game and, and access to, to, uh, to opportunity. Oh, yeah. And you talk about, you know, young entrepreneurs wanting to have, you know, a shoestring budget and find a little space and, and open a hole in the wall and, you know, try, try to build something, try to build something different that's not just, hey, we have to be on one of these premier streets in the premier district where all the, where all the bars are and stuff. And it sort of creates this um, neighborhood diversity and you can build a, a bar that, you know, has a different sort of theme, you know, because you don't, you don't need to have all that overhead cost to like support yourself for up to three years. Jeez, that's absolutely incredible. Um, Cameron Bogue, he is from Mount Pleasant Vintage and Provisions. You guys are on Main Street, right? We're close. We're close. We're two blocks off. We're okay. In Ontario. Yeah, perfect. I love the area. The place looks awesome. I'm going to try to stop by and check it out. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in. How would you feel if you've you know saved your whole life because you want to provide your kids an education, a post-secondary education? You prepare them for it. You you know it's going to be so much money, and you're dreaming about what they're going to do and how they're going to make a bunch of money and pay for you through retirement. And then your kids tell you, Mom and Dad, I want to go to school and be an influencer. An influencer is a person who goes on social media and posts about things. For money. There's this like influencer culture thing that many people who are my age in their 40s think is just ridiculous. But the generation behind me, Gen Z, they love this stuff. They're all about it. All of them are trying to like find a way to to be an influencer because, well, I mean, it is pretty cool. You get paid to like do the thing that all of us are already doing. Like, hey, I'm at this restaurant. Come and try it. And they pay you to do that. You know, it's a pretty cush job. Like lots of celebrities. Kim Kardashian. Like that's a person that you should think of when you think influencer. Of course people want that job. Of course they do. It's like the most fun, lucrative, awesome job you could have. But it's like trying to become a famous actor. You know, is that what is the likelihood that that is going to happen? It's so rare. But now a university in Ireland is actually offering a course in how to do this. Influencing on social media is a $16 billion industry. So here to help us sort of understand some more and unpack some of this, Brooke Erin Duffy. She's a professor of communications at Cornell University. Thanks so much for being here, Brooke. Thanks for having me, Scott. How does this make you feel when you hear about an influencer university? Is this like ridiculous to you or do you like, does this make you, uh, is it set off like red flags? You're starting to feel frustrated or are you like, oh no, this makes sense. I think in a lot of ways it makes sense. Um, you know, over the last decade and against the backdrop of the rise of social media, we've been hearing Many statistics and surveys, a lot of them with um, dedicated interests and kind of profiling Gen Z, about how many of them are seeking a career as a professional TikToker or influencer or, you know, the voguish term now is creator. And so as universities across the world are trying to remake themselves in the wake of the pandemic, um, they need to think about where young people are um, trying to get educated, trying to burnish their skill set. And so, um, you know, in that capacity, it makes sense. Uh, The allure of being an influencer, as you just mentioned, is kind of bound up with this idea of working for yourself, doing what you love, pursuing your passion. And so, um, you know, as people are kind of turning their attention away from 
what we would think of as the prototypical nine to five. There's, of course, a, a rise um, in interest in these careers. Uh, the the thing I want to kind of express caution is it's it's a lot more time, dedication, strategy and uh, pluck and luck than a lot of people give it credit for. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's a thing that a lot of people, like you say, don't think about, you know, we see people who have, I don't know, a hundred thousand followers, 500,000 followers. And I have no idea how much money that equates to. I know that, you know, the people like I referenced Kim Kardashian, those people, you know, I, I heard once that one of them got paid like a million dollars to, to, to tweet about something or to post about something that obviously has to be, you know, the one in a, one in a billion chance, like the pluck and luck thing that, that you talk about. But the other side of this that I, I want to I ask you about, you know, so there's a univer- you're a professor at a university, a highly regarded mm-hmm. university, and for so long, universities were seen as this place of like higher education, you know, that have uphold, upheld this standard of uh, the betterment of society and of the individual by educating ourselves and by educating each other and discourse and dialogue and having these conversations about how we um, advance, you know, and some of that is by looking back and studying history and studying science and and art and now do you feel at all that you know universities are are starting to move into things like like this and it kind of is devaluing um, the institution in a way is that does that resonate with you at all I think the the tension that you mentioned between um, the sort of ideals of higher education that's you know, in a lot of ways hitched to this notion of the ivory tower and the realities of um, careers and vocational training. I mean, this is kind of a longstanding tension, but I I will say that in recent years, I think we've seen um, this tension exacerbated, especially in uh, the U.S. case where um, investments in higher education are kind of scrambling away. And so, um, you know, there is the sense of like, how does the university cater to its longstanding ideals, but also, um, you know, address the, the needs of, of students. And um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's, it's certainly a deep rooted tension. And um, the other part of it is the fact that universities are kind of struggling with new sources of competition, including the fact that a lot of um training programs and curricula and um, pedagogical offerings are now offered through the digital media landscape. And so, you know, to what extent are some of the unique product offerings of the university? Well, we hope it is the um, the caliber of research and um, top-notch faculty and so forth. But again, there is that kind of reality of, of students coming in and saying, okay, what am I going to do with this quote unquote product, meaning my education at the end of it. And so, um, yeah, I, I'd say it is kind of a, a marked and ongoing challenge. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and fantastic answer to that as well, that this is something that we've always had to work out and are always going to have to work out. Um, do you expect that we will see more universities doing this type of thing, adding influencer courses? I think we'll see maybe more educational um, offerings in the form of courses. My own university, we offer a a personal branding course in my department. Um, But I think what's a bit different about this is it's a full four-year program. 
And um, one of the challenges of having something that's, you know, longer term, and I, I kind of laugh with longer term as being four years, but um, this field is changing so rapidly. And so, you know, how do you find out what are some of the enduring issues and challenges in a landscape that may look very differently um, four months from now, not let alone four years from now. I mean, we we're hearing about concerns that the TikTok may disappear or maybe they're moving to an ad model. Um, the algorithms on which shape the patterns of success, but also failure are, are changing at a breakneck pace. And so, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that any educational institution will offer or kind of struggle with is how do you balance continuity versus change within such a rapidly uh, evolving environment. Yeah, no question. I know that people talk about that in sort of any um, media-driven industry. Uh, Brooke Aaron Duffy, she's a professor of communications at Cornell University. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.